What is it? Freddy! Where are you? You will pay attention for a time. And soon your thoughts shall all be mine. Watch the pretty coin of gold, and you will do as you are told. You gotta love some Scooby-Doo, don't you? How many times did that happen in your favorite cartoon growing up? A lot. I don't know. It seems like cartoons... Now, I'm 45, so I mean, this goes on back. Some of you don't have a clue what the rest of us are talking about. But um, it seems like cartoons went through this, this phase where hip, hypnotism... Uh, was sort of a thing. And what always blew my mind about that is that it would happen to the same person more than once. Like they didn't catch what caused it the first time, and it would happen again. And then what was even worse is when another character in the cartoon would hear about it and would would have seen it or, or witnessed their friend or the other person in their group be hypnotized. They would know who the bad guy was And they would still watch the thing move and become hypnotized themselves. I mean, just stupid, right? I mean, who does that? You know who the bad guy is. You know how he's doing the hypnosis. And yet you look anyway and end up the same way as your friend under their control. And yet, how often do we allow ourselves to be mesmerized by the controlling lies and rules and religiosity of legalism and end up with the little spirals of the cartoons in our eyes. Spirals of self-reliance and self-righteousness circling around in the eyes of our hearts. Philip Yancey said, legalism is a subtle danger because no one thinks of himself as a legalist. My own rules seem necessary, right? But others' rules seem excessively strict. Isn't that true? Isn't that what goes on in your heart? My rules, I mean, they're good rules, My list of what makes you really holy before God is a good list. But your list, Ken's list, Joe's list, Ron's list, that's a whole different thing. I don't want you, Ron, telling me from your list what I need to do or what I don't need to do because I like my list. However, if you ask me, I'll be glad to tell you what you should do based on my list. Are you tracking with me? I mean, you live this stuff, don't you? We're in the middle of a series in the book of Galatians called Radical Grace. The only real kind. And if you're understanding, if your explanation of grace does not smell like a religious scandal, then it's probably not 
the biblical gospel. In fact, when you talk about grace, if it doesn't feel dangerous, then it's probably not pure, 100% unadulterated grace. Piper writes, the reason the book of Galatians has such a radical, life-changing message is that it pronounces a curse from God not on atheistic or agnostic outsiders, but on professing Christians who try to serve God in a way that diminishes His grace and cultivates their own spiritual pride. Satan is continuously at work tempting us to think and feel that because we use God talk and come to church and pray at our meals and avoid gross sins, we are therefore under God's blessing. But the book of Galatians concerns a group of people called Judaizers who do all of these religious things and yet, according to Paul, are under the curse of God. We've seen so far, as we begin today, as we continue today in chapter 3, we've seen so far Paul laying out the truth of justification by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul capsulizes the gospel and he says this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. A person is not justified, that is, made right with God. More specifically, declared righteous before God. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And in those verses we saw a few weeks ago, Paul is, is chastising very, very forthrightly the apostle Peter. The story is Peter had come down to where Paul was at Antioch. And he had understood, Peter had understood straight from Jesus in a vision, his freedom in Christ. The fact that, that no one would be justified by keeping the law, that it was all about trusting Jesus and what he had done. And so he had, had come down there to Antioch where there were Gentile Christians mainly there in the church. And, and he, was, he was hanging out with them. He got up in the morning and had bacon with his eggs. He was loving ham sandwiches uh, at lunch. I mean, I mean, he was loving the freedom that he had in Christ, and he was he was loving getting to know people from another culture that that weren't Jewish, that had different ways of doing things, and he was just enjoying life in the in in, in God's church, in the true spiritual Israel of Gen, Jews and Gentiles there in Antioch. Well, some of his homeboys came down from Jerusalem one day, and he started acting differently. He kind of pulled away from his new Gentile friends. He he he, he went and found a, a a Clorox wipe, and he got the ham grease off of his lips so he didn't smell the pork on his breath. And he went back to living legalistically, no, according to the Old Testament law, no pork, and, and acting like sitting with the Jews. 
And Paul gets in his face. He said, dude, this, this, this doesn't cut it because you are compromising the gospel. You're not saying a word, but your life is preaching a message that Jesus isn't enough, that you've got to add to Jesus' works. And what have we seen in our study so far? We've seen that if you take one drop of works and add it to grace, you don't have grace anymore. You have legalism and you have poison. One drop of arsenic, the lethal dose of arsenic is one drop. One drop of arsenic in this bottle of water changes it from something refreshing to something that'll kill you. And, 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 and see, you can't even see that there's anything in here, can you? So it is with the poison of legalism. And so in these verses that we just read, Paul has, has been in, in Peter's face. Peter, you know better. You and I got justified the same way we came to know from Jesus himself. We came to understand no one can be justified by the works of the law. We are justified only by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so in Galatians 3, Paul begins his defense of this truth, that we are justified by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. And he began, as we saw last week in the first five verses, by appealing to the Galatians' personal experience of God's grace in Jesus. But I want you to See verse 1. This is not going to be on the screen. Listen to how he starts this chapter. You foolish Galatians. The Phillips translation. You unthinking blockheads. Who has bewitched you? Who has put you under a spell? Who has mesmerized you so that you don't know what's going on anymore? And we began to talk last week about breaking the spell of legalism. And we saw last week that we can break the spell of legalism by remembering our own personal experience of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what verses 1 through 5 are about. This morning we're going to pick it up in verse 6 and go down through verse 14. And we're going to see Paul continuing to defend justification by faith alone in the work of Christ alone, but today he looks at the Old Testament Scriptures. So this morning, as part two of breaking the spell of legalism, I want to talk to you about the gospel in the Old Testament. That's what Paul's fixing to show us in Galatians 3, verses 6 to 14. The gospel in the Old Testament. Here's what I want you to take home. We can break the spell of legalism by realizing that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way of salvation. Salvation by faith alone and the work of Christ alone has been the plan from Genesis. Do you remember the garden? And I'll I'll start here and then we'll jump into the text. Remember what happened in the garden? Things were perfect. God told Adam and Eve, "You you you can just enjoy this garden. There's one tree that you can't eat of. They had one rule. They had to believe God wanted their best and obey him. But they didn't. Satan came along. He tempted Eve, who in turn seduced Adam to take the fruit. And and long story short, the couple fell into sin, right? And then what did God do? He cursed Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And when he was cursing the serpent, what did he tell him? Well, he told him a lot of things. You're going to crawl on your belly, There'll be enmity between your seed and the seed of woman. But, but then what did he say right there in Genesis 3, 15, 16, right in there? You will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring, but he will crush your head. And from Genesis 3, 
the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ was proclaimed. Grace has always been the plan of God from the very beginning. How can we know that? Well, you know, you think about the Old Testament. If you were to flip back to the, especially to the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there you would find over 600 laws required to be kept by the Jews of the Old Testament. So how can we know that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way of salvation? Well, I want you to look with me at three truths from the Old Testament that Paul highlights in these verses. First of all, in verses 6 through 9, I want you to see Abraham's justifying faith. This is what faith does. Hear hear what it says so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, verse 6. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when it said from Genesis 12, verse 3, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Right there in those verses, we see the gospel in the Old Testament. Paul looks back to Genesis. Paul looks back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And he said, even back then, Scripture foresaw that God would justify you Galatians. By faith, and, he, and it announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. No doubt, the Judaizers, those false teachers there in Galatia, they were pointing to Abraham, the father of the Jews, and they were saying something like, remember, it, it can't be just as simple as just trusting Jesus. Remember Abraham. Remember Genesis 17, verses 10 through 14, where God required Father Abraham even to be circumcised. He had to be circumcised. And from then on, all Jewish males had to have the mark, the physical mark of circumcision. Remember. And so if you're there in Galatia and you're a new Christian and you're hearing this... I mean, they pointed to a verse in the Old Testament. It's there. Genesis 17, 10 to 14. It says that it had to happen. What do you do? Well, if you're not clear about the gospel, you capitulate to that. You give in to that. You go along with it. Well, I mean, if, if the Bible says that, then that's what I've got to do. In these verses we're reading, verses 6 through 9, Paul basically replies and says, you know what, that's true. But if you go just a little bit further back in your Old Testament history to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, which come before Genesis 17, y'all tracking with me? I mean, the numbers go in order, 12, 15, 17. If you go back to the the places I just looked at here in verses 7 and 8, 6, 7 and 8, you'll find that God had made a promise to Abraham, that Abraham believed it, and it was his trust in God's promise that made him right with God. It was his faith that was counted as righteousness by God. So before circumcision, God had already made a one-way promise. I will bless you. And when Abraham believed God, it says there in Genesis 15, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know what that's called? Justification by faith 
alone in the work of Christ. Alone. Over in Romans chapter 4, by the way, there's some parallels in, in between, between Galatians and Romans, and here's one of them. Romans chapter 4, you, don't need, you can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read several verses quickly. Paul gives a fuller treatment of this whole history of the life of Abraham and his faith in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, and also 9 to 17. Paul says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. When you work and earn a paycheck, it's not a gift when you get paid, is it? Right? It's what you earned. It's an obligation of of the employer. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? We've already said it. It was not after, but before. Verse 11 of Romans 4, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, He is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. That means he's the father of believing Gentiles. He's our father in the faith, if you will. And he is then also the father of the circumcised Jews who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the steps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law. That Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be, their, be the be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. I love this. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That was in Genesis 17 also. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. We who were not the people of God as Gentiles are now the people of God. How? Through works? Because we cleaned up our act and became Jews? Because we had some surgery and became an Israelite? No, because Jesus died and, and the promises that through him were saved and we believed the promise. Even Father Abraham was justified by faith. If God justified Abraham by faith, we can be sure his plan is still the same. John Stott writes and says, Faith is laying hold of Jesus Christ personally. There is no merit in it. It is not another work. Its value is not in itself, but entirely in its object, Jesus Christ. Hear me. It is not enough in this world to have faith in some generic God. It's not enough 
to believe in some higher power. It is not saving to simply have faith, no matter how much you have. Your faith is worthless unless it's attached to the one Savior, the one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. And you see, if this is how God justifies... Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5 has already shown us. It's also how he sanctifies. If we begin by grace through faith, let me tell you, folks, that's how you continue. You don't get saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and then live by works as a Christian. And yet some of us do. We're tempted to do that all the time. We're, we're tempted to become religious and legalistic and, 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 and to put aside grace and do it on our own for God. It's never meant to be that way. And so we've seen Abraham's justifying faith. You see, we can break the spell of legalism by realizing that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way of salvation. That's how he saved Abraham. Abraham looked forward. He didn't have all the details about the cross and the resurrection, but he knew one thing, and we'll see this in a couple weeks. God had made him a promise, through your descendant, singular, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Paul tells us later in Galatians 3, Guess who that was? One guess. Don't miss this. Jesus. And the Bible says Abraham believed that promise. We'll get to that. That's awesome. That's that's some good stuff. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Secondly, the law's cursing works. Abraham's justifying faith, verses 10 through 12. The law's cursing works. And what we find here is what works cannot do. Hear it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. 600 plus laws. But let's just talk about the 10, called the 10 commandments. How many of you stand up? I want you to stand up today. I mean, I want you to show off this morning. If you've perfectly kept the 10 commandments, stand up. I got to get down. I mean, that's just 10. What's the matter with you? And we can't even keep 10. And they're simple. I mean, the 600, man, it gets messy then, right? We talked about tattoos. <laughs> that, tell you, that, that tell you when we were talking about tattoos? If you weren't here, I've got one. We'll talk about it later. But um, <laughs> they tell you right before that, it says, men, we're not supposed to let the hair right here we're not supposed to cut it like it's supposed to curly cue right here. Cut everything else, but not right here. You've got to have locks. Yep, y'all are all messed up. You're done. Hell, straight to hell. Verse 11. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. What's the point? Nobody can keep it all. Nobody can come even close. Because the righteous, he quotes scripture again, will live by faith. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, Leviticus 18, 5, the person who does these things will live by them, or, as is the case, die by them, because they won't do them at all. You want to earn your salvation? Even just a little bit. You want to contribute one drop 
to your standing before holy God, then here's the deal. You must keep the whole law and you must do it perfectly. And here's the problem. You've already screwed up. You've already blown it. You've already sinned in the past, so it's too late. But even if you could start over, what's the chances? None, zero, not a... You want to earn your salvation? Then just, just, just keep God's law perfectly. You see, there's just this little issue that the Bible tells us about. Romans 3 verse 10 says, There is none righteous, none. No, not one. In case you don't know what none means, it means no, not one, Paul says. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. James weighs in on this thing and he says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he's guilty of it all. I mean, the the curly thing that I said a while ago wasn't a joke, for real. Before holy God, if if you disobeyed one command, you're toast. Because he's perfectly holy. And so it's what Romans 3 verse 20 tells us. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our what? Sin. John MacArthur says, law and faith are mutually opposite and mutually exclusive. So if you're going to try to live by the law, you've got to go whole hog for the whole law. Secondly, you ought to know it's impossible. And thirdly, you ought to know that you're cursed for failing. Pretty ugly picture, isn't it? We were talking about something in Sunday school and it reminded me of Matthew 18 where Jesus... Andy Sandler was actually referring to Matthew 18 where Jesus says to the little children, you know, his disciples are trying to keep the kids away. And and what does Jesus say? Let the little children come to me. And then he uses those little children. I just see them. They they come all around and they're just all over him. They're in his lap. and, and, And what does he say? Let the little children come to me. For such is what? For such is the kingdom of God. And he goes on and he says, basically, if you don't become like a little child, you can't get in. And as, as of course, I had this message in my mind. I was sitting there thinking, so let's think about this. Law, works, or grace, and faith. What can a child pull off? Law? Over 600 commands? Even 10 commandments? Or grace? Simply believing God. I did that as a six-year-old child. A kid can grasp grace. Why is it that when we grow up and we've been in church for a little while, we get too grown up for grace and we think we graduate to some higher plane of spirituality where we are serving God, we are working for God, and we are somehow in our own, our own, being good people who should be admired for our righteousness. Hello. You see, we got to be a child to get in the kingdom, and we got to stay a child to grow in the kingdom. We can break the spell of legalism by realizing that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way. Of salvation. We've seen Abraham's justifying faith. We've seen the law's cursing works. Thirdly and lastly this morning, 
Christ's redeeming death in verses 13 and 14. Here's what we're going to see in these two verses. Faith justifies only because of Jesus' death. Christ's redeeming death, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful two verses. Christ redeeming death. Jesus bore the curse of the law. Namely, he bore death in our place. Death, a death where the full wrath of Almighty God was poured out on him because of my sin and your sin. Jesus bore the curse of the law in our place that we might become the children of God by faith in him. And then Paul says, then enjoy the presence of his Holy Spirit living in us. We might become the temples of the living God. Is that not amazing? Do you really see what goes on in salvation? We go from an enemy of God under the just and holy and everlasting wrath of God to being... Sons and daughters of God, but further of being the temple of the living God. The place where God lives in our hearts. Oh, what amazing grace. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. And that's key. Was there, is there anything wrong with the Old Testament law? No, Paul in another place says the law is good. It's holy and righteous. God, God's a good God, and he made a good law. What he requires are good requirements, in their, at least in the, in the particular context in which they were given, for the time in which they served. But Paul says here, the law was powerless to do salvation because it was weakened by the flesh. Who's the flesh? That'd be me, that'd be you. See, the problem's not the law, the problem's us. The problem's sin in here. And here's this perfect law and sinful souls like me that can't keep, can't meet God's standard. We fall short of the glory of God. We transgress his commandments. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, Romans 8, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He condemned my sin in the flesh of Jesus who bore my sin in his own body, Peter says, on that tree. And he did it so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met and that I could be justly counted righteous before a holy God. Because I am actually, actually and, and practically righteous? No. Because I'm legally declared righteous before holy God because Jesus, his righteousness is credited to me. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the work of Christ alone. Martin Luther used this term in, in the Latin. We are... We are simultaneously justified and sinful. Simul uh, peccator and, 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 and whatever justified is in Latin, it just left my mind. 
At the same time, I'm still in this body of flesh. I still sin today, but you know what? God sees me as perfectly righteous in his sight. How? Because all of the righteousness of Jesus is credited to me. I'm clothed. You're clothed, if you know him. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 is about. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 puts it this way. God made him who had no sin. Who's that? Jesus, to be sin for us who had sin. (laughs) So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You know what you are? If If you know Jesus, you are the righteousness of God. In Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You are seen as righteous as Jesus himself by the Father. That's amazing. I, mean, I don't even have words. I can't, I can't even shout on that one. I'm just speechless to think that, that the Creator, who is so holy, sees me as righteous as He sees His own Son. Because when He sees me, He sees me wrapped in Him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling, says the old hymn, Rock of Ages. And that is the gospel. You see, we can break the spell of legalism by realizing that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way of salvation. Chuck Swindoll says, We act as if God's grace only makes up what our good works lack. But the most conscientious, dutiful, hard-working Christian needs God's grace as much as the most dissolute, hard-living sinner We all need the same amount of grace because the currency of our good works is debased and worthless before God. You see, Paul already said it in chapter 2, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God by buying into the lie of legalism for if righteousness could be gained through the law, through me doing good things, then Christ died for nothing. And I don't buy it. Paul said. He didn't buy, he didn't die for nothing. He didn't hang on that tree. He didn't bear the rejection of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because of me, because of you. And he didn't do it for nothing. He did it because there's no hope for me. There's no hope for you before a holy God except for his sacrifice, the payment for my sins by the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and through the resurrection in which he proved his victory and the satisfactory payment, he proved that it had been paid. I don't set aside the grace of God. Do you need to snap, be snapped out of the spell of legalism this morning? Have you been mesmerized by the good feeling you get when someone pats you on the back for your religious performance because you yourself have a list and you you did okay keeping it this week? May the gospel snap us out of it. You know, somebody might say, well... (laughs) I mean, if this, if, this, if this radical grace you're talking about, I mean, if this really is the real deal, 
And it has absolutely zero to do with how I live, with my works. I miss a pretty sweet deal. I can get heaven, I can get right standing with God, and I can do whatever I want to. I said at the beginning, if your understanding of grace doesn't have the scent of a scandal, then it's not a biblical understanding of the cross. Here's the deal. You can. That's exactly grace. But if you've embraced this grace and the Holy Spirit of God in, 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 in the exchange of faith where you trust the promise of God in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live in you, you won't. Right? Because the same grace that, that gave you perfect and righteous legal standing before a holy God, <laughs> stay with me, the Spirit of God is now in you. And he will transform you. He will not leave you the same. And here's the deal. You can know if he's at home or not in your heart by how you live. So what does that mean? That means if you're, if you're comfortable living in sin, you should be very concerned as to whether you've ever embraced the grace of God in Jesus. Because when you embrace Jesus, you embrace his spirit, and his spirit embraces you. He indwells you. He's with you. And if you can be comfortable in sin, maybe the spirit of God is not in you. You see, God's grace disciplines our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our works don't add to Jesus. Jesus works in us to both will and to do, by his Spirit, to both will and to do of God's good pleasure. But that's how you know if the Spirit's at home. Does your heart want to please the God who saved you, to please the Savior who hung on the cross for you? And does the Spirit of God in you enable you to by grace, not in pride, not in self-reliance, it, you know it's not you, does he allow you to take steps in obedience and follow in the steps of Jesus day after day, little by little, not perfectly, but little by little, consistently, more steadily, maybe tomorrow, hopefully tomorrow than today, is the Spirit at work in your life. We can break the spell of legalism by realizing that radical grace by faith in Jesus has always been God's way of salvation. Let's pray together.